All right, folks, welcome back to uh, episode one, part two of our Firm Foundations podcast. We're really excited that you're uh, listening. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to start out, we're, we're going to get uh, into our content today pretty quick, but I do have a question for you, Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. How do you take your coffee? You know, I do enjoy kind of the more specialty kinds, but if I'm just home, I go black. I'll just pour it and drink one too many cups and then kind of ruin my morning that way. I, I Yeah, I, that's how I take it as well. I'm, I'm, I love... I, the problem is, after the third cup of black coffee, my brain is begging for more and my stomach is crying out for an end to it. Yes, yeah, you kind of... You kind of settle your heart right in the middle of brain and stomach while they fight it out. It's kind of like a tug of war when finally that that ribbon lands right in the middle and you're at peace. I love coffee. Alrighty, well, okay. But now I'm curious. Do you use? Do you have a French press, pour over, just a plain old coffee maker? Yeah. So I do have a coffee grinder. So sometimes I'll get whole beans, but we do just regular coffee maker. Gotcha. A couple gotcha. scoops, hit the water. I'm a big fan of the pour over because. I would love to say that I am a true snob and really care how I do it, but honestly, it's just the easiest to clean. There's something to say about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. That said, let's go ahead and get get started. So we were talking in our first uh, the first part of this episode about um, ways that the church sets itself up to fail. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not a firm foundation for many people. Right. And, yeah. and many, many have left the church. And we, we got into why that is. And we kind of left it on this question of, well, I mean, <clears throat> if if we can't trust the church, who or what can we trust? Yeah, and uh, kind of looking at the statistics from last episode with people just leaving faith altogether, not finding a new one, it's kind of the question of where did the faith go, or is it just in something else? So, uh, yeah, we're looking at that question of where should it have been the whole time, and where can it go, where does it go, and um, we're looking specifically at... Scripture. Scripture. <clears throat> yep. The You know, that was, f- for me, again, coming back to my story of, you know, I, I was out of church for six months after this this time at the Institute and, and uh, going through all these really difficult questions. Uh, for me, it came down to I needed to trust in something, uh, and I couldn't trust in the church anymore. So I went back to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that, I had to question, okay, is this Bible worth trusting? Yeah. I mean, that's a fair question if you're going to put as much faith in it as we and Christians around the world do. Why? Absolutely. And and so I had to, uh, for my own sake, really believe that that Jesus is okay with questions. Um, he's not okay with pride. I didn't want to come and just, you know, uh, start attacking and accusing and, and, and have all these... Uh, I, I didn't want to go out and search with an agenda. What mm. I wanted was the truth. If Jesus is who he says he was, uh, he, I mean, he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And he says uh, in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <clears throat> and and he also calls himself the living word, the word made flesh. Okay, so the Bible must be good. Mm-hmm. But how can I know that for sure? So I, I, that, that's where I really started uh, on a deeper discovery of what the Bible is. Um you know, you, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, these these books written by 40 different authors over 
1,600 years, roughly. Uh, the first part of the Bible, the, the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, I mean, it's, it, it's a collection of Hebrew texts written about the people of Israel and how their God planned to save the world through this people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part, the New Testament, is a collection of letters written by followers of Jesus who claimed to be, who they claimed uh, that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of promises made in the Old Testament. Uh, so, so we have this collection here. But the first thing I had to come to grips with is, is this thing coherent? Does this story of scripture, is it just a bunch of random narratives thrown together? Or is there, is there something that, is, is there an overarching theme? Yeah. And I mean, I think coherency in general is a big topic to look at and understand why would people believe this. But uh, like you mentioned, Josh, with the Bible being 66 books by 40 authors, 1,500 years, a lot of people hear that. Um, I mean, we also have it written in three languages on three different continents over that time. So I mean, it dr- brings into question when people say things like, well, how can you trust a translation of a translation of a translation? And um, I mean, that is a concern if you're looking at translated documents. But we'll look at a little bit later on in this episode about actually original manuscripts, not so much the hand written by the apostles, but original language. So it's just one step of translation from that to us. But um, also looking at coherency, when people look at um, whether they'll try to find false prophecy in the Bible or maybe two verses that don't necessarily coincide or even sound like they just straight out contradict each other, I think a lot of that comes from us forcing upon the Bible what we want it to say or what we think it should say. Um, But when we look at Scripture, we see things like uh, we'll have sections of poetry, we'll have sections of history, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, and it all does tell the overarching redemptive story, but in very different ways and two different people. So when we look at just a specific passage and we say, well, this can't mean this because this verse over here says this, we have to look at the whole context. Who is this being said to? What kind of um, literary devices are being invoked? I mean, there are puns in the original language. There are word plays. There's rhyming, of course, in the Psalms and elsewhere. But we can't just look at it at face value and say, oh, this says something that looks like contradicts this. Therefore, the whole thing's bunk. We have to look at how are we to interpret it and how are we actually interpreting it. Yeah, those are those are really great points. I mean, the, the word, you know, for, for uh, biblical interpretation is hermeneutics. Mm. Um, and so if, if we're going into, if I'm, you know, if I'm going into reading the Bible uh, and I have no clues as to who wrote it, why it was written, to whom it was written, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to get the wrong message. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we see that in not just so much the church at large, but if we kind of can point out some more extreme versions of the faith where people will take certain recurring themes and verses and say, see, this applies to you. If you don't have a Lamborghini, you're not that blessed by God, but he wants you to have it. So if you keep donating to our ministry, maybe one day you will. But when you look at those in context, you think, was this actually about personal wealth? Or is this person in this instance being given and blessed with this wealth because of the godly actions they took beforehand? Right. So understanding that uh, even though the Bible is a collection of all these different works and different genres of literature— there still are these overarching themes that go through the entire, mm-hmm. yeah, the entire volume of the Bible, uh, and and it really is incredible. But even if the Bible makes sense, we still come to the question of: Is it reliable? Yeah, that's true. 
I mean, it, it is a thousands year old book. Uh, and is the Bible, is the Bible that I hold in my hands, you know, my, my ESV or, or even, you know, like my dad's King James version, authorized King James version. Uh, is that a worthy reading of what, you know, like the Old Testament authors two, 2000 years ago when they were right or 3000 years ago? Um, is this a worthy reading of what they were intending to say? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a very important question for us to ask and also just a obvious question for anybody doubting is because it comes up and you go, wait a minute. If this was composed this long ago, over this long of a time period, in different languages, by peoples that weren't entirely literate, then what do we do with it? But, And this is honestly a problem that, if we're going to take that stance, which again, on face value, it's a fair stance, it's a fair assessment, um, we have to ask ourselves, what can we believe from antiquity? Because if we're looking at just sheer attestation of ancient works, then the Bible really stands alone as far as uh, manuscript tradition, the mode of um, translation and copying, and just the sheer volume of manuscripts that we have. And I'm not going to read all of this um, because there he is... He has a large page of facts. So there, thank there, you. Thank you, Jeffrey, for not reading yeah, there, there's <laughs> the a lot encyclopedia of um, here. This is going to be from... Uh, the website's called truth faith and reason so i mean it is a christian website but go ahead and go there watch the link because they they cite out a lot of this where they're getting their information from and um a lot of this you can also just find on from different sources this is just where i went because it's all I, I i know people have their opinions about wikipedia but even wikipedia has uh, a lot of this exact same information yeah and so again not i'm not going to go through this whole list but here's just some general um list from this of what can we believe from antiquity so herodotus's work who was um he was kind of one of the fathers, I guess you could say, of history of just traveling around and going like, hey, you live in Egypt. What happened here when? And getting firsthand accounts of, hey, this is history. Because up until this point, a lot of ancient history was just propaganda. If I beat your army in a battle, I'm going to tell everybody that you had 10 million soldiers and I had 100 and the gods were with me. Not a lot of ancient armies had 10 million standing troops, but that's the kind of thing you see. So anyways, with Herodotus's work... What we've been able to find so far um, was a, is 109 manuscripts, which that sounds like a lot. Right. 109, that's quite a bit. But they're dated roughly 1,350 years from the events. So after. Yes. So the thought is, judging on Herodotus's life, that he w these would have been written somewhere between 480 and 425 BC. But the earliest copy date of these manuscripts is about 980. Okay. So that that's something. Uh, another one, Caesar's first-hand accounts of the Gallic Wars. We have about 251 manuscripts. That's pretty good. That's twice as many. Um, dated 900 years from the events. So we're getting a little bit closer. Twice as many events, about 400 years closer. That's pretty good. Um, let's skip down here. So into second place as far as just attestation goes. From Homer's Iliad, we have roughly 1,757 manuscripts dated 400 years from the events. So we're getting a lot more manuscripts and a lot closer. To the original writing of this document. Right. Well, so so we kind of look at this and we're like, hey, if we can trust what Herodotus says, or at least use it for educational purposes, we pretty, we're pretty certain that this is what Homer wrote because we're a lot closer. We've got a lot more copies. Right. So that's second place. So if we look at the Bible, uh, we have about 25,000 manuscripts. Uh, but if we're just looking at the original Greek manuscripts because... 
That's typically what's translated from. Uh, we have about 5,800. That's quite a bit more. A few, um, yes. But then what we see is that the earliest manuscripts are dated between 30 and 150 years from the penning. So these could be second generation manuscripts. Uh, for example, P52, which contains parts of the Gospel of John, is dated about 117 to 138. Um, and there is argument about when the last books of the Bible were written. Was it in 90? Was it before 70? We're not going to get into that discussion. But even if we take the late date or the early date, whichever one you want, we're still within one generation of the story being told. We have other documents like uh, P45, 46, and 47, which together contain most of the New Testament, dating from about 250. It's a little bit further out, but still we're closer than some of those other works of antiquity. And then we have the um, controversial, depending what your Bible preference translation might be. Codex uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are both from about the mid-300s, but these together contain most all of what we have in the Bible today, Old and New Testament. And those are within 250 years or so of the penning. So we have the question, does this necessarily mean all of this is exactly what was written? If we're looking at it empirically, no, we can't say, yes, this is absolutely what was written. But if we can't be confident that what we have is what was written, we can't be confident in any work of antiquity. Which is a position you can take, but seems very skeptical to me that we're not, we can't know anything about the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, I read a book called Textual Criticism uh, by Wegner. This, again, I'll have a, 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 I'll make sure that that book title is on our, our bibliography. But, um, you know, he, he talked about, you know, you, you, you mentioned that number, 25 thousand, mm. 25,000 from the first 400 years of the church, you know. Uh, one of the most incredible things are that these fragments are found all over the old world. Right. So they were sent to many different places. But when you compare these different letters, I mean, the, the you have the same letter, two different copies of the same letter in very different places of the world. They say the same thing. Yeah, and I mean, you'll hear things about um, variants, and I mean, this we don't need to get super deep into that because that's a whole well, other actually, animal. Well, actually, I can actually j just a little little detail on yeah. that because and, and we we could honestly give this its own episode uh, but a whole lot of our variants are literal typography errors they accidentally yes. put uh, there wasn't a comma but a comma instead of a period uh, or a misspelling or a strange phrasing but because we have so many copies that are so close to the uh, original writing we can piece them together and see that they say almost the same thing and find the most logical writing that we can assume the original was written. Right. And I mean, even things like, um, just to give an example out there, if your name is Eric and you're listening, I'm about to use your name as an example. Shout out to any Eric. Eric's listening. But say that um, Josh wrote me a letter and he used the word or name Eric and he spelled it E-R-I-C. I'm writing it in a cave by candlelight and my eyes are failing because I don't have corrective lenses. I write Eric E-R-I-K. That's a variant. But did the meaning change? Are we still talking about Eric? 
uh, assuming we both know the same Eric, I'm going to say we're still talking about the same Eric. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's things like that. There are times where, I mean, a, a different word will be used, and there are variants like that. But the vast majority are things like that. Grammar, spelling, the occasional... Um, you, at, you take the ending of one word and accidentally put it down because you skipped a line. And there are those things because they were written by humans. But again, the sheer volume, you compare them together and you go, oh, this is where he messed up. It, it becomes very obvious um, for the vast majority of Scripture mm-hmm. what the original authors intended. Uh, I mean, the, there there still are a couple hot spots, but in general, it's it's... It is a reliable reading. Now, just because we can believe that this is what the authors wrote does not mean we understand it correctly. Right. Oh, absolutely. Interpretation is a whole different different beast. I, I think that that is plainly clear in the church that, you know, we, we have this huge variety of opinions and beliefs, uh, not just on issues that don't matter, but on issues that critically matter. Mm-hmm. So just because, yes, I can believe in this Bible does not give me all the answers I need. You know, that that I have to learn how to understand not just the meaning behind, you know, any given word, but I have to understand the context. Who is this written specifically for? Um, you know, that there's just a whole lot of uh, different questions that we need to ask in order to think critically in our Bible reading. Uh, a, a book that um, actually Ben recommended to me was, and I'm spacing the name of the book, it's killing me, How Not to Read the Bible, I believe oh. is the title of it. Yes. Uh, and one of the opening phrases is, yes, the Bible was written for the church, but it was the modern church. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. Yeah. And I, th- I think... Um... Because that's that's a couplet that gets used a lot, and I, sometimes I feel like it does get abused where people go, oh, this isn't written to me, I'm not going to read it. And we don't mean to in the sense that there's nothing to garner from it, that it doesn't apply to you. When we say to, it means when Paul wrote down the letters to Timothy, he was writing to Timothy, all of the instructions work for us today, and therefore, you, in a sense, you can say, oh, that yeah, that that's to the church. That's correct. But he didn't sit down with the purpose to write, hey, Josh, do this when finding elders. He wrote it to Timothy. Right. But suddenly there, there's these truths that were written to direct, directly to Timothy, but apply to the church, the whole mm-hmm. church. Uh, so, so it's extremely good information, uh, but, but it helps us. You know, I, I think a great example would be uh, in the beginning of Revelation, uh, he opens with letters to the churches. Mm-hmm. Um. It's very clear that this is not written to Josh. He literally, you know, <laughs> to the church in. Um, oh, I'm I'm spacing the names of the churches. Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia. Thank you. I see. I I was gonna say those, and then I didn't feel confident about Boston, it. Boston, New York. I just read the Bible. You know, I don't think so. Anyway, <laughs> oh, okay. um, it it's very clear that these are written to individual churches, but it says, you know, when when he says to one of these churches, you've become lukewarm. Guess what? I've had a lukewarm heart before. I've not cared. I've been apathetic. There's still application for me specifically, even though it wasn't written to me specifically. Right. And, um, I mean, there are lukewarm churches today that apply by that. But that does not mean that since it was written to a church, that since you are in a church, 
your church is automatically lukewarm. That's, yeah, that's, just across the board. This that's a bad to understanding. Mm-hmm. So, so that it's very important that we make sure that we have a proper understanding. But, but even you know, get, getting back into the, some of these deeper, more basic, you know, okay. The Bible seems to be coherent. There seems to be an overarching ne- narrative. Uh, it seems that these texts are reliable. But what is the difference from it? I, I mean, what really sets it apart besides its reliability? Mm-hmm. What really sets it and its narrative apart from other religions, other you know works of of, of other faiths? Yeah, and this is an area that I think you can kind of look at it a couple different ways. Where one, if you're just looking at the sheer theology, what is the text trying to get across? You'll hear a lot, and if you're listening, you've probably heard something similar where, well, Christianity is the religion where it doesn't tell you to do something because you can't, that God already did it, and that this is all free. And, I mean, that's a that's a good argument. Theologically, it is different. But even if you just look at the actual text itself, with the free transmission, uh, we kind of touched on this with uh, when Josh brought up that these manuscripts exist all over the ancient world and they're more or less the same thing. If it was a controlled and somebody was saying, hey, you have to translate it this way, one, we probably wouldn't have as many variants as we do. Right. And two, that would actually cause more concern for the translation because who had who was the one telling them what to say? Since it was free translation of like, oh, you guys have got a copy of what Paul wrote. Can I copy that? Sure, go for it. There's, it's more widely spread, and there was not an overarching unit controlling what had to be said, which is something that's different. And I mean, we don't need to get into textual criticism of other books, but that is a different history that the Quran has, which was a controlled transmission where all of the uh, manuscripts were called back together so that there could be one Quran. And even to this day, uh, there is one Quran uh, to the point where. Um, I believe it was Shabir Ali, but he was giving a talk one time, and he was mentioning a verse in the Quran. He couldn't remember the name, but he told the person to look at this chapter and say it's on the right-hand page at the top. And you can do that because they're all the same. But if I'm using an ESV, you're using a KJV, and someone in the audience is using an NIV, I can't say go to page 356 and look at the top right because no one controlled what was in the book. So, I mean, you, you have all these um, copiers mm-hmm. out of control, <laughs> and they're still coming up with the same answer. Yeah. Which is amazing. It, yes. It, it really is. Uh, in addition to, you know, you had these, these original 12 disciples. Now, we don't have uh, nearly as much evidence about the rest of their lives, but we do have tradition, which is somewhat reliable. Mm-hmm. Um as to they all died horrible deaths. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so we, we assume that they had a very strong and firm belief uh, in what they were preaching. But what were they preaching? What what was so revolutionary that they were willing to die for it? Yeah, and this, um, this kind of becomes the whole crux of the Christian story. Um, most people, even if they are nominally Christian, will come to Christmas and Easter. Christmas being the birth of Christ and Easter being the resurrection. And this is kind of where everything hinges because it is so supernatural. And when you look at the resurrection, you'll get a lot of criticism of things like, so this, I am a Roman clerk in the area of Judea. 
I put somebody in a grave, watch the stone roll over, and it's gone. Since we don't have that quote-unquote smoking gun, people say, well, you can't prove it. And that's coming from our mindset of, like, it has to be documented. You have to prove it to me in court. And there's nothing really wrong with that mindset, especially if we're talking about criminal activities. But when we look at how the apostles lived, that these men that died horrific deaths because they would not recant this event in particular, that Jesus is Lord, that he died for the sins of his people— came back to life and ascended, it kind of shows that they, whether or not you believe what they said, that they certainly believed it. You have people like Paul who, as a Pharisee and persecuting the church, somehow does a 180 and then goes to help the church, grow the church, go on these crazy missionary journeys over the known world at the time. And he does all this by his own storytelling and by Luke's in the book of Acts, by meeting with Christ. So again, you don't have to believe that that's what happened, but he certainly did because he was willing to die, be tortured, be beaten. We talked about that a little bit in the earlier episode, but these people clearly believed what they were saying. Yeah. I mean, I, not only that, but uh, Chuck Colson was one of the men in the middle of the Watergate scandal hmm. uh, back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chuck Colson was one of the men right in the middle of the Watergate sc- scandal back in the 70s. And uh, he, he for him, this was one of the most astonishing proofs of the resurrection. These 12 guys kept their story straight. Mm-hmm. Three of them couldn't do it to avoid prison <laughs> for the president of the United States. Um, yeah. And it's it, you also just look at things like... Um, if if this whole thing was set up to be a ruse, for whatever reason, whether you think it was political gain, you think it was financial gain, whatever that motive might be, if we're just saying it's a ruse, if we look at the Bible story, the very first people to report the empty tomb back to the apostles was women. At the time, these would be illegitimate witnesses in a court of law. And this is who God said, no, you go tell my story. And when this gets written down later, people are going to know I told women to go tell this. And this is a, I mean, the disciples are recorded as saying, oh, they're hysterical. Mm-hmm. Let's go check out ourselves. Which, I mean, if we're saying, hey, I don't fully believe this resurrection story. Let me check it out myself. That's kind of apostolic. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> but then uh, and this is just another article that we'll put up. This is from Desiring God. So, again. This is from a Christian source, but um, the people that contributed to this, these are uh, scholars like Dr. William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Gary Habernas, and Dr. Michael Kruger. And it lays out a few different approaches, like there's philosophical approaches to it. There's kind of um, textual sources on it. You can go look it out if you want to look at it a little bit more. But uh, at the end of the day, it is a metaphysical reasoning that comes to the belief in the resurrection, just like faith in God as a whole. He has to change our heart. He has to change our nature. So... It might sound slightly cynical on my side, but if we had Roman clerk XIVV, I don't think that's a real Roman numeral, saying, hey, this is what happened, I still don't think people would believe it. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be empirical evidence that creates faith. Yeah, I I, I definitely would agree with you there. Um we do not have to have a blind faith. We do not have to shut off all reason and logic in order to have faith. Uh, but there still is things that we will never have a f- uh, a full grasp on. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It is not illogical to come to the conclusion that Jesus rose again, that he, he was dead and came back to life, based on the evidence we have. However, faith does not have to exclude logic. Faith does not have to exclude reason. Faith does not have to ignore evidence. But ultimately, we still have to have faith. Right. And I think, honestly, this is where one of the problems becomes where, at least in the secular world, and unfortunately, sometimes in the church world, we see this divide of like, oh, you don't believe the Bible because you believe science. What if you believe both? (gasps) Because, I mean, we can look at things where the Bible is not a science book. It just tells theological reasonings on whatever genre it is, like we talked about in the beginning, where if we can come together and believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we can disagree how he did it. But he did it. Same thing with like the resurrection. You can believe in science, believe that somebody's dead and they're not coming back to life. But if God does it, he created this whole world. He's not bound by the laws he's put in motion for us. The right. physical laws. Yeah, I mean, I'd, unfortunately, I've been to funerals and gone, seen people pass. And because I believe in the resurrection doesn't mean that I sit there going, oh, they're coming back. They're coming back. I, I'm fully aware what happens when a heart stops beating. I'm really glad you do not do the jack-in-the-box music for funerals. Fool me once. Fool me twice. Seven-year-old me was really... Nope, nope. <laughs> We, I don't know if we're going to cut that out or not, but <laughs> so Moses was in the bull rushes. But <laughs> may, may, may. <laughs> this is staying in. Yeah, you know what? Why not? Um, <laughs> this is our podcast. What are they going to do? This is a monetized. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, as you were saying, yes, you know, we, we know that there are death is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unavoidable. Uh, but yeah, we take it on faith. We, we, we have seen the evidence we've heard, you know, we've read the accounts, uh, and take it on faith that as a matter of fact, if Jesus is who he said he is, he certainly has the power to come back from the dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me that, that was, that was the, the pinnacle of my, uh, reconstruction, so to speak, was just, okay. I will believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And since then, it's been a journey of learning to understand the Bible better. Because I don't have the best understanding of the Bible. You know, I I definitely uh, uh, have had incorrect conclusions because I did not understand the context in which it was written, why it was written, uh, you know, what specific situation was being addressed in, in certain letters. Uh, and so as I've spent time digging into Scripture, learning some of those those extra facts has really opened my eyes that, wow, the Bible is so much deeper than I ever gave it credit for. Getting more information does not take away from the authenticity, the, the uh, what's the word? The, the authority scripture has. Mm-hmm. If anything, it, it just makes it deeper. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of this comes from the church's side where there are great biblical scholars that aren't believers and will look at the Bible and say, well, it's clearly a story about Jesus and his disciples and what their message needs to be. 
but sometimes we as Christians, we take everything so for granted that I've, I haven't done this survey, but I wouldn't be surprised if you asked your average American, what order were the books of the Bible written in? They might just give you the table of contents. Yeah. Because, I mean, in our own history, once you get to Acts and Romans, someone's just going to keep singing the Awana song. Like, oh, this must have been written next. Why are you Why are you calling me out like this, Jeffrey? If anybody needs to hear Josh's Awana song, we're setting up a Patreon specifically for Josh to <laughs> sing. <laughs> Careful, someone might donate to that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, absolutely, understanding where all these books came from is a huge, huge step uh, for anyone wanting to have a real and genuine faith. Uh, because ultimately... Our churches will fail us, our pastors will fail us, our friends will fail us, other believers will fail us. We will fail. <laughs> we are failures, amen. <laughs> um, so we need something to fall on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I, I, I've made it uh, scripture because I believe that that this is God's inspired word. I believe Jesus is who he said he is. Uh, so this this is this is where I'll stay. Yeah, and just kind of one last thing at the end. We kind of we've talked about how regardless of how much information's out there, faith is going to be a metaphysical trust essentially. And really one of the reasons if somebody was to ask me why do you believe the Bible? Because Jesus did when he would be asked questions during his earthly ministry, his response would be, "Have you not read what God spoke to you saying?" And so many times we gloss over that, but if you actually look at that, have you not read what God spoke to you? None of these people were alive when Moses wrote the commandments down, but Jesus said, God spoke those to you, and you can hear him speak by reading. So if I believe that he rose from the dead and that he's the Savior, he thought it was pretty important. Yeah, it's it, these are not wild stretches that we're making, but we are making... You know, these, these, we are believing these things still in faith, even though it's, it's not illogical. Because mm -hmm. logic and faith don't cancel each other out. Just, just to make that point a little bit clearer, I, I really uh, firmly believe a lot of people have this idea. If you believe you have to be all the way in, you can't have logic, any evidence that seems contrary to what you already believe. Well, actually, I've had to adjust my beliefs, not because God was wrong, but because I didn't understand. Yeah, um, Christian paradigm shifts are actually sometimes really fun to go through because there's times where you realize what I was believing before kind of scared me. And what I believe now, this is much more fun to believe. Absolutely. And then every now and then, oh, now what I believe is scarier than what I believed first. Oh, that's true. And I think it all comes down to kind of, we mentioned this briefly in the first episode, and we'll get into this more as we talk about leadership in the church, but it's okay to question your leaders. And if someone come, if you come up to, someone with an actual biblical reason say hey i heard you teach this i don't outright deny that but how do you parse that with this can we talk about it and if someone instantly shuts you down and say we can't talk about that that is a bigger problem on that person than yourself asking absolutely. questions is absolutely totally okay and should be encouraged again i'll go back to what i said in part one jesus was not afraid of questions he did not have time for pride uh but People who just came and asked, mm -hmm. who were humble. Nicodemus came in the cover of night. He was not arrogant. He was not proud. He's just like, teacher, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. What did you mean by this? 
And, and Jesus just sits down and explains. He is not afraid of your questions. So please, please don't be afraid to ask. Speaking of, if you guys have questions for us, we would love to answer them. Send us a, a message or an email, uh, and we will, uh, and try to include as many questions as we can in the podcast. We'll have a listener question segment. Yeah, we, we love questions. Actually, questions are pretty good. And uh, Josh, I have a question for you. Wait, before we do that, before we do that, I just want to make a little final point here. Josh is going to make a final point. Hey, my question was, Josh, uh, could you make a final point? I can do that. Thank you, Jeffrey. Oh, yes. uh, so just this little final point. You know, we, we've, we've established that uh, the church is not a good foundation. Believers are not, you know, other people are not a good foundation. The Bible is our foundation. We're going to have a segment in every episode talking about how, you know, a, a continuing, this is how we know we can trust it. Uh, but as we go forward with this podcast, one of my big uh, hopes and, in, and, and what, I'm, what I'm really going to try and do is tackle issues that are in the church currently and get an actual honest biblical answer instead of just throwing out opinions and thoughts and ideas which are so prevalent right now um i don't want to just throw ideas and and contribute to i told you so theology and i think jeffrey would be in agreement with that yeah i think um like we've mentioned check our sources um we'd be happy to get those to you if you wanted them but more importantly check our scripture references um and if we make any point even if we didn't mention a scripture with it feel free to say, hey, how does that line up with Scripture? Because it might not. And if it doesn't, we'll apologize. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we recognize that we are not perfect. Um, and as part, part of what we're going to do is be getting into God's Word and sharing it with people, and that uh, puts us in a position where, where we're held to a certain standard. Mm -hmm. And so we, we do not mind being held to that standard by you guys. Um. All that said, all right, Jeffrey, what was the actual question? Oh, let me drum one up for you. Are you going to include a... Would you rather? Oh, were you going to include a, a drum roll in post? No, our guy in post is on strike. Okay, Jeffrey's our guy in post. Anyway, yes, what? would I rather? Would you rather be in prison for two and a half years or spend three days in the belly of a great fish. Oh, that's tough. That's tough, man. Gosh. To add a qualifier, I'm thinking Roman prison, like Paul. Someone's going to be chained to you. Not our cushy one where you get... Do I get to be chained to Paul? No. Okay. You're in his stead. What about Silas? So that means I'm chained to Silas. For the sake of this, yes, you'll be chained with Silas, and, or you'll be in the belly with Jonah. So so here's the thing about the belly. A lot of people don't really think too deeply about this, but, like, the fish had stomach acid. And lunch. When his when he was spit up, he was probably, like, his skin was bleached. I imagine his hair had started to fall out. Mm -hmm. The smell... Um, look, I'm just going to... Mm. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. Am I getting Roman food, too? Straight gruel. Okay. Time out. Time out. Am I a Roman citizen? So, like... Ooh. 
Because this, you know, this... to, to make this segment end quicker. Yes, you have the full rights. All right, of a Roman then citizen. I will be in the Roman prison. I just, <laughs> I don't know how much longer I could try dragging this segment out. So, <sighs> alrighty, folks, this is it for our first episode. Thank you for listening to both parts. Uh, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, we hope this is a blessing for you. Like I said, if you have questions, if you have comments, message us, email us. Uh, all of our links will be in the bios. And yeah, we will talk to you guys in two weeks. Be blessed. <laughs>